And good morning. Once again, can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. And as always, we like to just let the new folks, good to see you, but let you know that we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday morning. And we have currently come to John chapter 5. Many commentator scholars believe John 5 is the greatest chapter in John's gospel. I would have to debate them on that. There's so many good ones, but I understand where they're coming from. And so we've come to chapter 5, and we're right now in a series we've entitled, Jesus Declares His Divinity. Now, as we said last time, the discourse that Jesus gives here, starting in verse 17, and running through the end of the chapter, was the result of a miracle he did, uh, as recorded in the first 15 verses. He healed a guy who had been lame, for 38 years. And uh, this led to this teaching. Now, this follows a pattern that only John really brings out in his gospel. And that is, a, it's a pattern that Jesus established throughout the course of his ministry, where he would do a miracle and then give a discourse or a teaching, which would lead up to, to one of the seven I am statements John chose to build his gospel around. These are declarations of divinity god almighty is the great i am and so as jesus worked a miracle gave a discourse of course a crowd gathers you want to get a crowd work a miracle uh a crowd gathers and so he uses the opportunity to teach them god's truth and uh, that led up to then a, a declaration of divinity one of the seven great i am statements of john's gospel and again guys this is no inconsequential truth because our eternity hangs in the balance when it comes to understanding who Jesus is, and in particular, I'm thinking about the divinity of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But remember what Jesus said in John 8, 24? If you don't believe that I am, in other words, if you don't believe that I am Jehovah God, the great I am, Yahweh, then you're going to die in your sins. You're going to go to hell forever. This is not a small issue. This is an essential doctrine. This is why the devil has fought against it so vehemently over the centuries and misled many, as we're going to talk about a couple of groups this morning who have been misled and are misleading many others. But um, this is why we have devoted so much time to this section. And uh, in John chapter 5, verses 17 to 30, Jesus makes five claims to his own divinity, five claims to equality with the Father, with God. Now, we started with the last, excuse me, with the first uh, main point in our outline. Let me review. The first main point in our outline is Jesus claims equality with God in his person. Back up to verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Yes, healed this guy on the Sabbath, been lame for 38 years. You think these... Uh, folks would have been happy about that. They didn't care about this guy. Uh, all they cared about was their traditions and their man-made laws and so on. Verse 17 is what we really want to key in on. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews, Jewish leadership, sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Now, as we said last week in Jewish culture, a son was always considered to be equal with his father in personhood, not in authority. Of course, the father was always greater than the son in authority. But uh, in essential humanity, yes, they were always considered to be uh, equal. Of course, we have that in America. Our, our sons and daughters get the same rights that we have. But in ancient culture, it wasn't like that. Okay, I'm just bringing it up so you understand the cultural mindset in Jesus' day. This was, this was not something that was uh, universal, but it was, you know, to Israel. And uh, in fact, uh, the Jewish mindset on the subject was that the son, listen, was an equal extension of his father. Not just equal with the father, but an equal extension with his, of his father. That's important to understand this as we go, all right? Now, the, as we said last time, the Jews viewed themselves collectively as sons of God. And so they did refer to God as our Father. But, but listen to me. Only in the sense 
that God was their father in the sense that he gave them life creatively, not relationally. In other words, he is our father in the sense that he brought forth all of creation. He's the source of all life. In that regard, okay, they called God our father. That's how they addressed him, our father. But when Jesus, who was the only begotten son of God, said, my father, okay, uh, instead of the usual our father used by the Jews, well, he was claiming a relationship with God that went beyond being a creation of God. Now listen, uh, there are cults that believe Jesus Christ was a creation of Almighty Jehovah God. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was the first created thing Almighty Jehovah God made, and then through Jesus everything else was created. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus Christ is not a created being. John makes it very clear to open up his gospel when he says that by him, Jesus Christ, all things were made. In heaven, or, I'm getting into Paul a little bit, but all things were made, okay? All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Paul says in heaven, earth, under the earth. So mixing my scriptures, but that's all right. It's same idea, same idea, okay? And uh, so Jesus Christ is creator God. In that respect, of course, we know he was equal with and is equal with the Father. But the Jewish people, and I'm thinking primarily the Jewish leadership, they acknowledge God was our Father because He brought us all forth creatively. But when Jesus said, God is my Father, he, they knew He was claiming a relationship with God that in their mind was blasphemous, idolatrous, anathema. It was not something they uh, adhered to. And that's one of the reasons they wanted to kill him, because they believed he... Look, in their minds, and rightfully so, anyone claiming to be equal with God was also claiming to be God. Of course, he was claiming equality with Yahweh, the great I Am. But in so doing, he was claiming to be God. You can't be equal with God and not be God. So they knew what he was claiming, and that's why they wanted to kill him, uh, because of blasphemy. That's what they did with blasphemers. They stoned him, okay? So no one can be equal with God who is not God. The phrase making himself equal with God in verse 18, as we said last time, employs a present perfect tense verb in the Greek, and should be translated this way, or it could be, Jesus was continually making himself equal with God. In other words, this was no isolated incident. This was the hallmark of his ministry. Everywhere he went, he claimed equality with God. Because, of course, he is God. We saw that last time as we looked at chapter 10 of John's gospel. And uh, he worked a miracle and, and, you know, and then began to do a teaching. And uh, they picked up stones to kill him. Now, we can thank the Pharisees uh, in this regard. Every time they picked up stones, you read something and all of a sudden they're picking up stones to kill them. Check that out. Because obviously they're highlighting something for us that we might miss. Okay, what did he say? Why did, why did they want to kill him? All right. And this time they picked up stones to kill him and Jesus answered and said, them, Look, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of these do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, again the Greek, constantly and continually make yourself God. So they knew what he was claiming. They had it straight. Others may say, well, no, he didn't really claim to be God. Yes, he did. And these men knew. You know, the, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, I don't care what they or any other cult tells you. They'll tell you Jesus is not God. He never claimed to be God. That's full-blown heresy, full-out heresy. The fact is that those who heard Jesus knew he was claiming to be God in human form. Folks, that's why they wanted to kill him, for blasphemy. It does remind us of what John said uh, about Jesus Christ to open his gospel. Turn back to chapter 1 real quick. Remember how John opened his gospel? He said, in the beginning was the word, a title for Christ. How do we know that? You can check out Revelation 19. Jesus coming back to establish his kingdom. He's called the Word of God. But um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with 
God. Now, we talked about that when we studied chapter 1. The Greek is literally, and the word was toward God. The word was toward God. The idea that John is presenting is that the word, Jesus Christ, was toward God, the Father is the idea, in the sense of being, listen, face to face with, eye to eye with, on the same level with, or in other words, equal with God. That's how he presents it. The word was toward God, eyeball to eyeball with, on an equal level with God, because he is equal with God. In other words, Jesus is not just a mighty God, but something less than almighty Jehovah God, as the JWs teach. He isn't always has been equal with almighty God. And as we've already said, anyone who is equal with God has to be God. And that's why John went on to say in verse uh, 1 of his uh, first chapter, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses challenge this by bringing up John 14, 28, where Jesus said, You have heard me say to you, I am going away. And coming back to you, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father. Listen, for my Father is greater than I. And so they say this proves that Jesus is a lesser God out of his own mouth. He said, the Father is greater than me. This proves that Jesus Christ was a lesser God and not equal with Almighty Jehovah God. But you see, folks, when Jesus said, my Father is greater than I. He was speaking in terms of his earthly mission. I will have you turn to these two, Philippians 2 and then Hebrews 2. So find both, put your finger in Hebrews. My father is greater than I. Oh, see, now that proves he's a lesser God. That doesn't prove anything. Proves you don't know the word, that's what it proves. So in, he was talking about his earthly mission in Philippians 2, starting at verse 6. Though he, Jesus, was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. So Jesus laid aside the glory that was his in heaven and came down and became a man that he might go to the cross and die for our sins. Be careful when you read Philippians 2 that you don't read it this way. And Jesus Christ laid aside his deity and became a man. That is absolutely untrue. That's heresy. God cannot cease being God. Now, Jesus Christ is God who became a man. We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, uh, which is the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man in Christ, okay? He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was fully God and fully man. He didn't give up his divinity when he became a man. He gave up the glory that was his. He was born lowly in a manger, manger grew up in poverty, his stepfather, Joseph, died early, and Jesus had to take over the family business, uh, the carpentry business. And by the way, some folks like to paint Jesus as this little puny Casper milk toast kind of a person. You know, you see him on some of these paintings, and all these little scrawny little Casper milk toast. Look, in the, he was a carpenter, okay? In those days... You couldn't call Home Depot and ask them to deliver your lumber. You, have to, you had to go into the forest, cut it down, drag it back to your shop. You had to take the bark off, cut it into boards, or, or whittle it, do whatever you want to do to make it something. These guys were like lumberjacks. You ever seen a small, milquetoast-looking kind of lumberjack? I mean, this, Jesus was a man's man. Proven by the fact he went into the temple one day and saw the money changes and the selling of animals and the ripping off of people in the name of God. And he was so upset that his father's name was being denigrated, he took a cat of nine tails, or a whip I should say, and he started turning tables over and driving animals out and people running for their lives, you know. He was, he was no little runt Casper 
milk toast kind of guy, is my point, okay? So, you know, he became one of us, okay? He became, and then we read in Hebrews chapter 2. But, uh, verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So here it tells us that Jesus, when he became a man, actually became a little lower than the angels because of the mission he was here to fulfill. And so, guys, when Jesus said, my father is greater than I, He's not talking in terms of essence and being. They're both God, completely equal. In the spirit of God, it's the third member of the Trinity, the Godhead. He is speaking in terms of authority. My father is greater than I in authority. The authority that I have placed myself under voluntarily. When I you know, agreed to come down and die for the sins of humanity, I placed myself under my father's authority. And of course, later on, Jesus would say, I'm going to go back to the Father, and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and basically he's going to be under the Father and my authority. But they're all equal. Jesus became a man lower than the angels even. When he came down to the earth to die for sinners. God can't die, God's spirit. So Jesus had to become one of us, not only to die on the cross, but to be a kinsman redeemer. The whole book of Ruth is built around that idea. A goel is the Hebrew word. Uh, it had to be a near relative that would redeem somebody out of slavery. Uh, redeem means to buy back somebody out of slavery. A near relative. Jesus Christ, Adam blew it for all of us. In Adam all die. Uh, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, uh, died for all of us that we might be saved. So the Lord Jesus was not saying again that his Father in heaven was greater than him in essence and being. Again, they are both equal uh, because they are both part of the Godhead. But it was about his mission. Uh, that's what it was all about. Uh, you know, you, uh, a young man or woman joins our military and under the Constitution of our United States, they are equal with their commanding officers. Um, but not in authority. In authority, the commanding, they're putting themselves voluntarily under the authority of a commanding officer. That's what Jesus did, okay? So the first point in our outline, Jesus claims equality with God in his person. The second main point that we want to look at today is Jesus claims equality with God in his work. Again, verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now, the religious leaders were upset with him because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. And they didn't, uh, they didn't like that. They, they thought that was a violation of Sabbath law. It wasn't really, and Jesus points it out, my father works on the Sabbath, okay? Therefore, I work. But in their minds, the Jewish uh, leaders' minds, they had come up with all these rules, and so Jesus was violating the Sabbath. And again, he wasn't violating uh, God's interpretation of the Sabbath, only these religious leaders, their uh, ridiculous uh, man-made rules concerning the Sabbath. So uh, they essentially you know, attack Jesus. Why are you healing on the Sabbath? And he basically responds, why do I work on the Sabbath? Because my father works on the Sabbath. And really, as we said last time, the work that he and his father are constantly doing 24-7, all right, is the work of saving souls. That is what I believe is the main idea here. Now, commentators, you know, I've read other commentators, well, he's talking about uh, he makes the sun shine on the Sabbath, he brings rain on the Sabbath, he causes the earth to still rotate on the Sabbath. Yes, 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 and I agree with all that. I just don't think that's the main point that Jesus was making here. I, I don't believe that's the main idea. When Jesus said, my father works on the Sabbath, therefore I work, he was saying, look, the work of redemption is something that we are constantly involved in, saving souls. 24-7, 365 days a year, God is working to save people. He never takes a day off, and we're very thankful for that. Now, we did talk last time how that God, after the original six days of creation, God rested on that first Sabbath, not because he was fatigued, folks, as some people claim, unbelievers, uh, he, he didn't rest because he was fatigued. He rest, rested because the work of creation was finished. 
The word Shabbat, rested, is simply a word that means to cease from activity. Uh, God never gets tired or weary. He never slumbers nor sleeps. The Bible is very clear on that. Uh, God is, uh, is almighty. He, he, can he can create the universe with, with his word and never break a sweat, quote unquote. He never, you know, he doesn't say, wow, I'm, be I'm beat. That was, a, that was a, wow, hard day. I, you know, I created this, I created that. No, God doesn't expend energy. He is almighty. He, he's, you know, does, it doesn't happen. He never gets tired, okay? But as we said last time, after God finished the original creation, physical universe, not long after, man fell. Genesis 3, right? And so immediately God began working on the new creation, the work of redemption, which Paul calls the new creation. In fact, he says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone, man or woman, is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Folks, we are the prelude to God bringing about an entirely new universe, an entirely new creation. The first one was corrupted by sin. And it wasn't just planet Earth, it corrupted the entire universe. And so God is working right now to redeem men and women in preparation for him someday of destroying this present creation, which is corrupted, and creating a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem for us to live in, an environment where no sin, no defilement will ever, ever enter, a brand new creation. And we are the beginning of that, those that he is redeeming. Now, when we talk about the enormity of the original creation of the physical universe, as we said last week, scientists estimate that the universe is anywhere from 12 to 18 billion light years in diameter, very big. And when you think about the trillions of stars, trillions of planets, and billions of galaxies in this universe, I'm telling you, it's a spectacular thing to think about. But look, as spectacular as the creation of the physical universe was, do you realize that, that um, there is only 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1 that God devotes to the creation of the physical universe? 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1. And then, you know what? The rest of the entire Bible is devoted to the work of redemption. The entire Bible is the rest of the entire Bible is devoted to the work of redemption. The Bible says that the creation, again, of the physical universe, was the work of God's fingers. Right? I mean, Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, you know, you ever got yourself a little craft or something? You're helping the kids with a little craft. It's just a little, you know, putting this stuff together. Just a little finger thing, you know. And after you, you got it put together, you go, wow, it might beat. Boy, that was rough, you know. No, just a little nothing. Just a little finger work. That's how God explained or described the creation of the physical universe. Just finger work. However, when it came to the work of redemption, the Bible says he bared his arms. In other words, we would say he rolled up his sleeves. Folks, the work of redemption, or again, as Paul the Apostle put it, the work of the new creation was far more involved, and from a human standpoint, far more difficult to accomplish than was the creation of the physical universe. You know why? Because in the original creation of the physical universe, all God had to do was what? Speak. And everything came into existence. But when it came to the redemption of our souls, God couldn't just speak sin away. Sin has to be paid for. God cannot sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. It all sin has to be paid for because... A righteous and holy God demands it. So when God wanted to create the universe, he spoke and everything came into existence. But when it came to the redemption of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, had to die. 
had to die. God's word makes that very clear. Hebrews 9 verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness of sin. Under the old covenant, God provided a sacrificial system whereby the blood of animals. Because, you know, God said the soul that sinned shall surely die. Adam and Eve sinned. God loved them so much. He didn't want them. He would have been justified to wipe them out on the spot. But he didn't. He allowed for a substitute. This was the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant sacrificial system. Whereby God allowed an animal to be sacrificed in the sinner's place, right? And the blood of the animal would atone, but not, which means to temporarily cover their sin. So they could have fellowship with God again. The problem was sin was not eradicated. Uh, sin had not been taken out of the way. It was still an issue. One of the stipulations God made with regard to the old covenant sacrificial system was the animal had to be without spot or blemish. So you couldn't bring God roadkill. You couldn't bring, you know, you, you know your, your cow just had a very sickly, maybe even a handicapped calf. It's not going to be any good. Delta's running down to the temple and give it to God. God said, no, no. Uh, it's got to be without spot or blemish. It was God's way of telling us that the animal had to be perfect. Animal had to be perfect. Well, that was to atone for the sins of God's people in the Old Covenant. Temporarily cover their sins so that they could have fellowship with God once again. The work of redemption, which is all about taking away sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world? See, that was much harder. That was much harder. An animal wouldn't do. If we wanted, it's one thing to have temporary fellowship with God on earth. It's another thing to spend eternity with him in heaven. For that, you need redemption. Now, what the problem is, sinners can't die for sinners. So we were left with a major predicament, if you will. Since sinners can't die for sinners, who would redeem us? In fact, the psalmist made mention of this, that the redemption of a human soul involved the price that no human being could pay. Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. You know, when man, you know, man wants to redeem his brother, but uh, the psalmist said, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. Folks, that's one of the great understatements in the Bible. Infinitely costly. Infinitely costly. Okay? The redemption of a human soul is so costly that no amount of money can purchase it. It requires a blood payment, life for life. But then, folks, only the innocent dying for the guilty. Of course, this all pointed to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who himself was without spot or blemish. He was born from a virgin, which meant original sin did not pass from his earthly father unto him. He had no earthly father. His father was God the Father. So he was born without sin, lived his whole life without sinning, and only he was worthy to go to the cross and die for our sins. Only he could remove the stain of sin. And not allow us just to have some temporary fellowship with God in the earth, but to spend eternity with God in heaven. And all the glory that went with that. Uh, I will have you turn to these two. 1 Peter 1, 1 John 1. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18, 1 John 1, verse 7. First of all, 1 Peter, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter acknowledges that the only one who could redeem us was the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 1, verse 7, John said, And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, the Greek is, continually cleanses us from all sin. 
So once you have received Christ and his blood has washed you of your sins, every time you sin and you come before God and confess that sin, the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Guys, the only ransom God would accept for the redemption of fallen sinners was the blood of his son, the innocent, the innocent, sinless, dying for the guilty. And so when Jesus said, my father has been working, again, 24-7 is the idea, until now, and I have been working, you understand that the work he was referring to was the work of redemption, saving souls. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, most assuredly, I say to you. Now I want to highlight that for a second. Because in the New King James, he begins this statement with these words, most assuredly. In the King James, it's verily, verily. In the NASB, it's very truly. Uh, excuse me, it's truly, truly. And in the NIV, it's very truly. So they all have a little different take, okay? But here's what Jesus is basically saying, okay? Whenever he, and I use the New King James, so whenever, when, whenever Jesus talked and taught on anything, I mean, of course, it was important, okay? Um, if he wanted to stress the importance a little more, he would say, assuredly, I say to you. If he wanted you to stop, put down whatever you had in your hand, cause your ears to perk up, he'd say, most assuredly, I say to you, verily, verily, truly, truly, that kind of thing, all right? And what he was basically saying is this, listen up and don't miss this. What's coming is very, very important. You must hear and accept what I'm about to say. Then he goes on, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. Now, guys, in this statement, Jesus was affirming his divinity based on the mutual works he and his father were doing. In other words, no one can do the works that God does unless that person is God. So again, uh, it may not be as clear as some would like it. But by calling God my father implied a special relationship, equality, he was claiming to be God. Can't be equal with God unless you are God. And now he affirms that once again with the words, most assuredly, most assuredly. I want you religious leaders to get this in your heads. Because I've been going around everywhere telling people about it. You're not getting it or you refuse to get it. But listen to me. You're upset because I healed somebody on the Sabbath. Hey, look, I only do what the Father does. If it was a sin to heal somebody on the Sabbath, then the Father's the sinner. Oh, they didn't like that. That was the implication. Okay? But I want you to understand something. I only do what the Father does, and only I, as God, can do what the, the Father, God the Father, does. Again, affirming his divinity. At this point, someone would maybe ask the question, a good question, no dumb questions, a good question. People hear this and, and, and me teaching this and might ask, if Jesus is God, then why can't he do what he wants to do? Why can he only do what the Father is doing? It's a good question. One author put it this way, and they quote, We must not think that when Jesus claimed to be able to do nothing except what he saw the Father doing, he was saying that he was something like a robot or a zombie who carried out the directives of the Father without thinking. This is not at all what he was saying, end quote. Of course not. You see, when our Lord came to the earth as a man, he submitted himself totally to the Father's authority and everything. In fact, Jesus, in speaking through the writer of the, of the book of Hebrews, said in chapter 10, verse 9, Lo, I come to the earth to do your will, O God. Father, I have come not to do my will, but to do your will. Of course, we read Philippians earlier, but only a certain uh, portion. Let me go back in Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5. Let me read it to you out of the NLT, second edition. Where Paul said, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. This, this attitude of humility. 
He goes on to say, you, he gave up his divine privileges, not his divinity. Again, please. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And so right there, Paul is telling us that Jesus humbled himself. He came down from heaven, laid his glory aside. When he became one of us, a little lower than the angels, by the way, as we said, and uh, he put himself under his father's authority. You say, well, what about all the miracles he did? Uh, he did miracles. What, what is all that about? Sure he did. But he only did the miracles his father directed him to do. Okay? Uh, Mark one thirty-five. He got up every morning before the sun came up to spend time with his father. And I believe when he did that, he was getting instructions for the day. That's why this chapter opens up with him walking into the area of the pool of Bethesda, where there was hundreds of crippled people or sick people all over the place, all waiting for the angel to stir the waters up so that because the first one in would get healed. Remember this, that story, how we started this chapter, right? And here comes Jesus. And this one lame guy, of course, he was lame. He couldn't really move that fast. So when the waters were troubled by the angel and he tried to get down into them, somebody always beat him, got in there before him and received the healing. So here comes Jesus into this area where there's probably hundreds of sick, infirm people. He heals one guy and leaves. You say, why didn't you just clear the whole place out? You'll have to ask the Father. I don't know. There's coming a day when Jesus returns, he's going to heal everybody on the planet. Again, you can read Isaiah 35, other places, the, the mute will speak the praises of, sing the praises of God. The lame will leap for joy. Uh, the blind will see the glory of God. He is going to heal everybody. Right now, though, he only heals those that bring him the most glory. But if you, you know, if you didn't receive a healing or somebody you loved didn't receive a healing, it doesn't mean God doesn't love you. God is sovereign. That's all I can tell you. God chooses what he does. Jesus is affirming it right here. I don't walk around doing what I want. I do what the Father leads me to do um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had his own power. He's God. He could have done things. But he availed himself only to the power that we all have available to us to do the work of God, the Holy Spirit who comes inside of us when we get saved. You remember how in the wilderness Satan tried to get Jesus to use his divine power, right? Uh, to satisfy his hunger. He'd been fasting for 40 days and nights. The devil appears to him. One of the temptations was yet they had these round stones on the ground. They kind of looked like loaves of bread back in those days. And Jesus was very hungry, and Satan said, you know, you have the power. Why don't you turn one of these stones into bread? Satisfy your hunger. And what did Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan, my father has not told me to do that. I'm not going to do it. He refused to act independently of his father. Arthur W. Pink, a, a commentator that I enjoy, uh, helps to clarify this. I'll just read you what he said. He said, it will be seen that in verse 30 we have a strictly parallel statement. And by noting what is added there, the one uh, added there, the one in verse 19 is more easily understood. The son can do nothing of himself. That's verse 19. It's repeated. I can do nothing of myself in verse 30. And then in the closing words of verse 30, we find that the Lord explains his meaning by giving as a reason. I, I can only I can do nothing of myself because I'm to say because. I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Pinko's, the limitations is not because of any defect in his person brought about by, by the incarnation, nor because of any limitation in his power voluntarily uh, or imposed. It was solely a matter of will. The Son can do nothing of himself, literally, the Greek is nothing out of himself. That is, nothing as proceeding from or originating with himself. In other words, the force of what he said was this, I cannot act independently of the Father, end quote. 
the son was so vitally connected to his father, Father God, that he could not act independently of the father. He does not mean that he did not have the power to do anything by himself, but that he was so closely united with his father in heaven that he would not, he willed not to do anything but what he saw the father doing. At the end of verse 19, well, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. And again, guys, don't miss this. This is a statement of divinity. No one can do what God does unless they themselves are God. Now listen, as we wind this down, as we have already said, the work of the Father and Son was primarily the work of saving souls, the work of redemption, the new creation. When Jesus worked on the Sabbath, and we talked about this last week, so I'll just mention it. When Jesus worked on the Sabbath to heal, to do a miracle, or any other day of the week for that matter, it was the work of redemption. See, the Father and Son are all about saving souls. So when Jesus went around working miracles and healing people like this uh, lame guy, it was the work of redemption. You say, how so? Because in the Old Testament, God said, when the true Messiah comes, you will know him because, again, he will give sight to the blind, he will heal the lame, he will cause the, uh, the mute to speak, and so on. Jesus Christ was do And what was the purpose of that? That people would realize this is tr the true Messiah, the Savior. And they would be drawn to him for salvation, which they would receive by faith. But guys, the work of saving lost people is rooted, always has been, in God's love for this fallen world. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? This world, the people, fallen people of this world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. Everything the Father does, everything the Son does, and the Spirit does, is all because of God's love for us. A couple of years ago, Sandy Adams, who was a Calvary pastor from Stone Mountain, Georgia, a lot of you guys know Sandy, he's spoken at our mentor retreat the last three years. But I was at a pastor's conference where he was speaking, and um, he made this statement, love flows down. Now, as we're pondering that, love flows down. He explained it to us. He said, our kids will never love us as parents as much as we love them. And by the same token, we will never love God as much as God loves us. Romans 5.8 God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. A lot of Christians won't even live for Christ, let alone die for him. We will never love God as much as he loves us. Love flows down. 1 John 4, starting with verse 9. In this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Again, love flows down. You know, often we feel guilty because we don't think we love God enough. And so we purpose that we're going to love God more, right? Make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to love God more. Okay. And while that's a noble quest, it is nonetheless a work of the flesh. Because we are focusing on our love for God, how much we love God, 
what we're going to do to love God more. It's all about us, right? You say, is it wrong to want to love God more? No, it's great. You've got to go about the right way. You see, the biblical principle is that we focus on God's love for us, not on our love for God. I have learned so much about God's love for me through my children and now through my grandchildren. I was telling first service that a year ago last May, my daughter and her husband and our granddaughter, Aria, moved from Arizona out here about a mile away from our house, which means, which means I get to see my granddaughter pretty much every day of the week. And it never fails, no matter how bad a day I'm having. Whenever she comes over, everything changes. My countenance brightens. My heart is lifted. Just to interact with her brings me such joy. She's not even four. Her little facial expressions, the way she kids around with me, it's amazing. This child is a riot. I just can't get enough of her. I know grandparents, we always all think our grandkids are the best. Okay. I'm sure yours are the best, too, for you. Okay. It just never fails. Whenever I'm around her, I mean, she just brings me such great joy. Now, I'm convinced that she will never love me as much as I love her. In fact, she has no idea the depth of my love for her. I would truly die for her in an instant. I wouldn't even think about it. One day, about maybe a week ago, her mom and her came over, and I think Cindy was working, but I got to spend a couple hours with her, and, you know, and uh, we were talking and watching cartoons and stuff and just having a great time. And, you know, as her mom and her were leaving, you ever experience this? Um, you love somebody, but at one point, you're just overwhelmed with how much you love them. And as she was leaving, I had one of those moments where I was so overwhelmed with how deep my love was for her, I couldn't handle it. And at that very moment, God spoke to me. The Lord has taught me so much about his love for me through my kids and my grandkids. But as I'm feeling overwhelmed with love for my granddaughter, having had the privilege and the blessing of spending time with her. God spoke to me and says, that's how I feel when you spend time with me. He said, you have no idea the depth of my love for you. And God never has a bad day, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm just saying, He just made it very clear how much he loves me. My love for my granddaughter, to me, is off the charts. doesn't compare with his love for me and you. I remember many years ago, we only had one child at this time, my son Phil. He was about two. And, you know, at this point, the church is just kicked into high gear, and I'm out there saving the world. You know, I'm going all the time, prayer meetings, counseling, Bible studies, you know. And often I didn't have much time with the kids because, you know, and then they went to bed early. I remember one night coming home after a Bible study, you know, and he was already in bed sleeping. And, you know, I had one of those moments where, is all this activity worth it? I mean, it's taking time away from my family, and, and in particular, at that moment, my son. And I remember going into his room and sitting on the side of his bed. He was sound asleep. I remember just kind of stroking his forehead. And I remember saying very clearly, all I want is for him to love me. I kept saying, I just, one of those moments, you know? All I want is for him to love me. And again, the Lord spoke to me very clearly and said, Phil, you don't know how many times I've sat on your bedside while you were sleeping. 
stroking your forehead and saying, all I want is for him to love me. You say, Pastor, that's kind of corny. Okay. I'm a corny guy. I still tear up when Linus tells Charlie Brown what the true meaning of Christmas is. Is he not talking about, okay, yeah, okay, I'm a corny guy. Pastor, you've got to be cool. You can't tell those corny stories. Can I just say this? God doesn't do cool. A lot of pastors today think so. God doesn't do cool. God does broken. God does humble. And yeah, I think God does corny sometimes. And I think of God as my father and I as a child. And little children aren't cool. They haven't had time for the world to indoctrinate them in cool. They just love with all their heart. That's how I feel about God. Now, let me just end with this. With this. The old saying, right? Sometimes we miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes you can get so caught up in examining every tree in a forest, you lose sight of the big picture, how beautiful the forest is as a whole. Sometimes, as we are studying John's gospel, and we're picking out all the doctrinal things, and we're focusing on all these doctrines, important stuff. Sometimes, we're so busy focusing on individual doctrines, we miss the big picture, which is God's love for us. How much God loves you. The whole Bible is about God's love for you. It's all about redemption. How God loved us so much that he came down, died on the cross for us, for us, that we might have eternity with him. And how much he loves when we spend time with him. What can I give God that he needs? Really, think about it. Christmas is coming. What do you give the person who has everything? God doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. You know what he wants? He wants your time. He wants your love. He wants your fellowship. Because it gives him great joy. May God give us all grace to understand as we study the word and become proficient in doctrine, we don't lose sight of the big picture. The love of God for each of us as his little children. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is so deep. The greatest theologians can spend a lifetime and, not, and, and barely scratch the surface. And yet it's, a simple, it's simple enough for a child to read it and come away with this very simple thought. Jesus loves me, this I know. Because the Bible tells me so. Lord, it's all we need, right? It's all we need. Please help us not to grow out of our childhood with regard to our relationship with you. We need to be little children in your presence. We thank you, Lord. We ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. Yes, we want to go deep. We want to understand doctrine. But give us grace, Lord, not to lose sight of the big picture, your great love for us. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.